Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Welcome to the first episode of the Founders for Good podcast. And I can't think of anyone better to kick this series off with than Sanjay Lobo, founder of On Hand, a person that embodies what it really means to be a founder for good and his tech for good royalty. Sanjay recently received an MBE for his services to older people, particularly during COVID-19, and he won the National Entrepreneur for Good Award. His company On Hand have been recognised as the number one tech for good company in 2021, alongside a number of other awards. Hey Sanjay, very excited to have you on the podcast today, Tech for Good Royalty. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for the invite. No problem. So if I can start by delving into your background a little bit, I actually saw you were a fellow law student, but you, like me, continued with the, the law the law career for a little bit. Can I ask what, what attracted you to law originally? And what attracted me to law originally, so it was, um, my son's actually about this age, but it's that age when you're at sixth form and you don't really know what to do. Um, and whenever I said, oh, well, I might be a lawyer, people seem to be really impressed. So that that, that and, you know, TV shows at the time, um, I can't remember what it was, LA Law, a long time ago, um, that that attracted me to law. Um, when I got to do the degree, of course, I hated it. <laughs> um, so really, I, from day one of studying law, I thought, well, this really sucks. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't from a, um, I guess I wasn't that well off. So it wasn't like a, I could drop out and try a different, different degree. I was going to finish the degree. Um, probably didn't mean to go into law. I was pretty pretty sure I wasn't going to go into law. And you might remember uh, law students apply for their jobs in the second year of doing their degree. Um, and I didn't. But when I, me- I remember getting back after that second summer and almost everyone else had a job. So I kind of thought I should apply. Uh, and luckily, I got I got one interview and I got the job. Oh, that is really lucky. Yeah, I, um, I finished my third year and everyone had their like training contracts lined up. And I just thought this is... Kind of similar to you, actually. I the, I enjoyed parts of the law degree, but I wasn't fully dedicated to it to like the extent that a lot of them were that were getting there first and and wanted to continue that career path. Um, so I can totally understand that. And and so you um, did your law degree, went into the legal career, and then I saw you actually kind of um, moved into like marketing and partnerships before kind of going to the startup world. Um, interesting move. <laughs> How did that come about? My move, so I went I went to a law firm first and then I went in-house to a travel company. I was really, really lucky to work for um, Travelosity. Um, this is back in the, like, um, uh, I guess the, the noughties, but back in the early noughties, I worked for a travel tech company who went on to buy lastminute.com and lastminute.com were, I guess, one of the first like tech unicorns in the UK. Um, and when I went there and I got the opportunity to run their legal team, which was, which was cool, I was still in my 20s. So I was in my 20s running this legal team at, a really hot uh, tech tech startup. Well, it wasn't a startup at that, that point, I guess. Um, uh, but I, I caught the tail end of what high growth looked like and the excitement the teams had and got to work with, you know, Brent Hoberman and um, some of the other original founders. Um, and again, we're really fortunate that I, I joined their exec team and, and sat on that for, uh, you know, five odd years. Um, and seeing the caliber of people coming in, the ideas they had, uh, the growth ideas they had and putting that stuff into into practice um, was phenomenal. And you know that, that that group of people have gone on to just incredible incredible positions um, um, since then. Um, and, and I think it was there that I caught the bug for what's this startup thing? Why is everyone so excited about the thing they did before? And I've caught the like the back end of it. Um, maybe I should do some of that at some point too. Uh, that said, LastMinute.com was such a cool brand in the in the noughties. I, I wasn't really planning on moving um, moving away from it. But I got a job offer. I got a random call for a, a job. I was still a lawyer. Um, uh, a random call for an English qualified lawyer to be based out of Barcelona. Nice. Um, which you know, it do- doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, and that was for a company called Vistaprint, who uh, were, a, um, I guess, an online print company disrupting print at the time. 
Um, and um, I didn't really know much about them, but I was really curious about Barcelona. <laughs> so I went for the interview, got the job, and, and they were growing incredibly fast. They were another really high-growth tech company, but they were a much earlier stage. Uh, so I, I joined um, roughly 100 employees, and um, the growth was like you know just just astronomical every month, um, going growing like crazy. We, we and we were launching across 17 markets across Europe, um, and almost immediately, my boss at the time um, said, "Hey." Can you help us figure out other stuff? And uh, by other stuff, she meant um, we've got to we've got to figure out how to do a call center in Europe for all of these markets we're launching into. Can you help us launch the call center? I was like, well, what, what do you mean? And she says, well, we think it should be based out of Tunisia because the language skills are really good there, and we also think we should own own the building. So can you go and find the land, <laughs> <laughs> buy the land, design the building, build the building, and then put three hundred call center staff in it? It's like what? <laughs> But um, so it was that kind of crazy growth thing where it doesn't matter if you were a, whatever job you came in to do. It was if you've got um, common sense and the willingness to get the work and stuff done, you're probably going to be stretched in lots of different directions. So pretty soon after that, I really wasn't doing law. I was running a legal team, but it wasn't really me doing it. Uh, I was asked to launch PR and uh, some other teams and eventually got to run uh, most of the marketing functions. So price, pricing, site, uh, creative um, and eventually got a job then running a global partnerships team, which is the first time I got revenue responsibility with a team out of the US and a team in, in, in Europe as well. So that, that was loads of fun. Incredible. And I guess this has all kind of helped tee you up for becoming a founder, like having that quite broad knowledge across different business functions must be really helpful. Yeah, to- totally that. So it feels like feels like all of that history. So even the legal stuff gets na- <laughs> becomes handy, but uh the, the catching the bug at lastminute.com with you know people like Brent Hoban that that was that was really cool catching the bug there was really cool but then the experience of this print of that really high growth and the mentality of how you do it at that speed um, where you know we, we we went across Europe very very quickly grew to the billion billion dollar revenue uh, really really quickly as well um, and how you grow the team from you know uh, hundreds to uh, like multiple hundreds. In a short space of time, that that was all incredibly helpful for then launching my own thing, um, and then I guess by that point, I've been in in tech for most of the last I guess I guess fifteen to twenty years, um, and at some point, I remember coming out of it and joining joining um, a, a much smaller organisation. So I went to join a um, what was really a startup at that point. Um, but I, I disagreed massively with the founder almost like almost from day one. It was really obvious we were saying different things and wanting to try different things. And, and actually our philosophy on how to run companies was completely at odds. Uh, so that, that was my, I guess my first experience of a real startup um, where actually I quit. <laughs> I quit after six months because um, it, I, I just, I, I wasn't, I wasn't getting on well enough with the founder there and it, it was going to, it was just going to go wrong. And so I quit after six months and wasn't really planning on doing uh, something like that again. Uh, so I wasn't planning on doing anything next. I was like busily ha- hanging out with my kids. I've got three kids um, and that was fun because I hadn't seen them for a long time. <laughs> Work, working too hard in the last 20 years. And um, uh, I um, I was trying to figure out how to get shopping done for my dad. So my dad lives in London. I live in Brighton. He was struggling with, um, you know, he's got Parkinson's. He was struggling with carrying his bags and he just got to the point where he, could, he couldn't quite do it. And so he's lucky he's got professional carers that live in the same block as he he's in and professional carers um, started helping with his shopping. But a, a different problem arose, which is like his, his weekly shop, single guy, um, you know, late 70s. Uh, his weekly shop was like 10 to 12 pounds a week. And all of a sudden it was 30 to 40 pounds a week because you've got to add on professional carers at 20 pounds an hour plus VAT. Uh, and no disrespect to carers, they do an amazing job. Um, but there's a price and, and I guess in my head I was thinking well that's not quite right just to get someone shopping and at the same time I happened upon um, an idea called On Hand and the idea had been set up by a number of charities people like the Red Cross, RNIB, WaterAid um, who'd come together with a consultancy to figure out well how could they generate new incomes um, and they want to invest in or, and, and come up with new new ideas and then build those companies um, and so that was the income part. And then they talked about, well, how and what do they want to solve in the world? Um, they all hit on the same problem that they struggle to recruit uh, certainly younger demographics into volunteering. Uh, and this is all pre-COVID. 
Um, and so they they came up with the idea of well, what if we made volunteering super flexible, on demand, based on your location, like everything else in your life these days. Um, and if they did so, could they could they then repurpose all of those volunteers to help with the older adult care crisis, which was like and still is a like phenomenal and growing issue. And that's how on how I was born. I, I came across the idea then. Um, from going from not working, <laughs> I went to not being able to think about it. Like every seven days a week, I started to think about it and then started working for them. And, you know, three years later, here we are. Got the itch <laughs> again. So you had the idea and you saw a problem. How did you go about validating that and figuring out there was a big enough problem here that you could build a business that could scale around it? Yeah, you're right. So um, I think at first I thought about, um, felt felt obvious to me, like it well, can't just be me that's having this issue with, I, I don't live where my dad is. I can't do my, his shopping for him. Um, it's not that I could use um, a shopping set. I couldn't use the um, Sainsbury's online or whatever because he's, you know, he's particular about what what he wants. So that wouldn't work. I could set that up, but it probably wouldn't work well enough. Um, and, I, and I thought, well, I can't. I just can't be the only one that has that that issue. So intuitively, it felt like there's going to be millions of people that, that have that problem. Um, and then the secondary thing that um, the consultancy had done with those charities, it it had, it had figured out how to use Facebook to acquire volunteers to the on-hand platform. They hadn't, they hadn't built it, but, but they'd run ads. And so the ads kind of showed that for something like 6p, 6p a pop, you could acquire um, a, a person, a person to download and sign up to the on-hand app, not, not just download, but sign up and give you their details. And essentially they had a spreadsheet of about 2,000 people, which they'd acquired like over a week or so by, by doing some Facebook ads. And so at that point, having the hunch that it can't just be me that has that issue and seeing the data point they had that they, they could, they'd figured out how to acquire volunteers um, incredibly cost effectively, I, I just assumed there must be a way with those two bits to make a profitable, profitable business. What does it look like? No idea. But that, that gave me enough. Yeah, there's got to be something. Doesn't take me much. Doesn't take much to get me excited, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> And am I right in thinking originally it starts off as more of the B2C offering and then over time it's it's transitioned to B2B more? Yeah, yeah, right. So it started off as B2C and that was the idea from um, those the innovation teams at those big charities that initially started the idea up. Um, and, and why they started it up is they wanted to develop new revenue streams. And one of them was, well, what if we did this B2C thing for volunteers to local, local people to help? And the model was, let's charge the person that gets the help, right? So someone like my dad or me as the relative who's paying a professional carer £20 an hour. Well, let's not be £20 an hour, let's be £10 an hour. But why don't we donate £8 of that to charities and, and on hand keep a platform commission of £2 for each mission? And he, you can see the logic of why the charities did that. £8 to the charities, which were them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So it was, it was a great, again, it was why they, why they set this up was um, how they create new revenue streams while solving a big, a big social issue. And um, the model probably wasn't right um, because whilst it felt like a good solution for what the charities wanted to figure out a new revenue stream, you've got this slight dilemma that doesn't feel, doesn't sit quite right, which is the volunteer who's giving out their time freely is kind of being charged out. Uh, so the model intuitively wasn't wasn't perfect, um, and I think I knew that from day one, um, but wasn't quite sure what the right model beyond it was. Um, and so that's how B two C started, and um, again based on the model, like if you're charging that platform commission at two pounds per mission, you've got to have the scale that Uber's got or Deliveroo's got to really make it into this you know giant uh, tech player. Um, and, and even before that, you've got to grow at a, a really fast click uh, to reach that um, sustainability and profitability level. Because if you're if you're going for two pounds a, a mission, you, you've got to need funding. So you're going to, you're going to have to take on um, uh, venture capital, uh, and therefore have to do things on certain timeframes. Uh, the switch to B two B happens um, actually when COVID hit. So I guess at, at that point, our journey was we've grown really nicely. Uh, in the first year, you know, we we just wanted to get to like, could we could we have a hundred people? So, you know, it's um, just starting, no brand, will anyone even trust us? Can we just get to 100 people we could help? Um, um, and, we, and we did it within three months. So it was uh, immediately that that opening of, is there an issue out there? Let's go and see flyers, you know, various houses and libraries and, and churches and that sort of stuff. Very quickly hit the, the 100 people that needed help. Um, and we went and raised actually twice in that year because it was like, we've got an idea, do you want to back us? Yes. 
And then actually we've hit our first year target in three months. We think we should go faster. Do you want to back us again? Yes. Um, <laughs> and then COVID hit. Uh, COVID hit. And literally overnight, you kind of think to yourself, well, we're, we're charging the most vulnerable person on the planet right now, like an elderly person who's you know, just been told they may die if they go out and leave their home because, because they might catch COVID and, and, and that um, is disproportionately affecting elderly folks. So immediately you think, well, we can't charge, we can't charge, charge the most vulnerable uh, person on the planet. Let's, uh, let's just break our model immediately. So we stop charging um, the people that received help. So, you know, clearly the, just the right thing to do at that point in time and then we were trying to think about well, well how are we going to make money you know luckily we've just done that second fund raise, so we knew we had a cushion uh, and we had some time to figure it out we went and did some deals with councils so very early in covid um you know councils were understandably re reacting in a way that they didn't know how to cope with um the volume of need that was in their, their local area um, the local services themselves couldn't cope with it either. So someone like Age UK in certain areas, you know, it's a, it's a fairly manual run process and a manual run team that use the phone and whatever else. And they couldn't cope with the volumes either. And so the technology we just started and, and literally it was weeks before um, COVID really broke that we'd, we'd released the app that had uh, local matching. Well, we now have this thing that actually councils could use or anyone could use really, really easily to get um help to someone that needs help in an on-demand, um, um, non-manual tech way. And so councils came to us and did we did some really lovely deals with them. Um, great for us, but really, really delivering like tens of thousands of missions uh, across the country. Um, but it also became really clear councils are never really going to be a growth uh, place for us. Yes, we could do some deals there, but you know, the councils don't have huge budgets, or if they do, they're already tied into giant projects. And to break that takes a lot of time. Um, and so that wasn't quite going to be the model for us either. Um, but then it was, um, we, we started getting approached by businesses. And the first business to approach us was Newcastle Building Society, who by luck, by luck and chance, we'd met in January earlier in the year. I'd been up to Newcastle to meet the uh, National Innovation Centre for Ageing. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> funny story behind that. They, they, they'd uh, we'd exchanged LinkedIn messages on a late Sunday afternoon. You're a founder, you kind of know how these things work, right? So on a late Sunday evening, I'd messaged someone at the National Innovation Centre for Aging. He'd ping me back 30 seconds later. We'd had a five-minute chat, which ended with, "What does it take to bring on hand to Newcastle?" So went there in January. You know, pure luck kind of thing. My my investors and board would probably say, "Why'd you do that? That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, why would you? Why would you go to Newcastle when you still got the whole of London's crack?" Um, but Newcastle Building Site, we met whilst on that trip, and they came to us in April, so really early in COVID, to say, hey, we've just sent our entire workforce home. They're working from across the Northeast. Um, we're struggling with how, and we know we're going to struggle to engage them over the next period of time. We're massively into social and local good, but we can't do what we used to do. We think your app can help because it's based on their exact location with people they can go and help around the corner. Can you come and help us engage our team? And that was it. That was a light bulb moment. As soon as we had that conversation, it's like, wow, that's incredibly powerful. That just describes, by the way, every other company in the whole world has got that problem right now. Yeah. Uh, so that's that was a switch to these bit. Nice. And in terms of, we've kind of obviously talked about the background and I know the products evolved a lot, but for someone listening that if they have to have never heard of on hand, I'm sure it's unlikely, but how would you describe like what on hand is, what the product is right now? Yeah, so on hand is the easiest way to engage an employee or really anyone in doing social or eco good. Um, so it's it's on demand, it's based on your location. There's no middleman, there's no waiting around. It's local goods like helping helping an elderly person or doing a donation to a food bank. It's remote good like uh, youth mentoring or, or just listening into a talk from some industry experts like Olio talking about food waste. Um, and it's social, it's, it's eco good as well. It's, it's taking a whole bunch of, uh, I guess, easy lifestyle pledges that will reduce your CO2 impacts, um, um, on, on, on the planet. And so it's, it's, guess it's, it's environmental and social good for employees. Love it. And, and I've been using it myself for, uh, I think nearly a year now. And I just love how easy it is for me to do good. And like you said, it can be me just changing a daily habit, which costs me nothing. It's it's literally me just thinking a little bit more and being a bit more conscious of a decision that day to go into a food bank. But I like the fact there is like a mixture of remote things. You can do stuff from your home if for some reason you can't get out and about. But there's also stuff which requires you to go and help if it's like a food drop or food, like food to a food bank. Um, 
And I can see how the, the apps changed incredibly over the last 12 months. Um, what have some of the growth challenges been? Like, has it been as you've picked up more and more companies and you have employees using the app from lots of different locations, it's been actually make sure there's enough kind of local missions or has it been other challenges when you've, when you've yeah, been growing the last 12, 18 months? Um, there's a number of different challenges that come in. Um, one is one is focus, right? So we we very much started in the LD and isolated space, and at some point, I can't remember when, we decided actually let's let's add other stuff. I can't actually remember what was the first thing we added beyond elderly, but we added things like um, pollution and eco cleanups, where you get the group together and um, go and do a little pick, or youth mentoring, or uh, I guess like food poverty stuff with with food banks and um, other donations. I can't quite remember what was the what was the driver to add beyond um, uh, elderly help, which is really fo- focused on loneliness. Um, still still massive for us. Um, but even that was like, well, it, what's the focus, and should that be the focus versus us going really deep on elderly help and potentially elderly help or loneliness? Loneliness being much much broader it can affect you know any age group. Um, massive, massive numbers on millennials get affected by loneliness. Um, and so one of the questions we, 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 we have, and it's almost constant, is what, what is the right focus for on hand? And to give you more examples, when we spread into eco, that was a big team discussion where, okay, um, I figured out that we could, um, how, how we could start planting trees relatively easily. And um, so I just, I just went ahead and did it and then said, hey, to the team, well, I've done this. I'm not quite sure how we're going to use it, but let's let's figure that out. And so we had a big, big chat about, well, does that fit? Is that right? Is that right for what we do? Or is that really confusing that we've gone from volunteering and now we've got this eco thing going on too? Um, and then we ran it past some customers and the customers loved it. The customers love that they could do uh, social and eco good in the same place. And, you know, the comment, commentary we got back was was just, just really, really lovely. Um, but even then, there's more bits that come towards you which um, can 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 um, change change folks again. So things like offsetting, we got, we got asked about offsetting a lot. Um, I'm personally not sure about offsetting. I, I think there's um, uh, there's definitely a place for it, but it's not the same as reducing reducing your actual um, impacts on the planet. Uh, and so there's something that's not quite about right about offsetting. And then there's things you can buy for offsetting, which would that happen anyway? So there's lots of question marks I have around offsetting. But we got asked if we should provide it, and as as a as I guess, as a founder, as someone who's growing a business that needs to reach sustainability and profitability at a certain point, it's like, well, should, should we? <laughs> should we introduce um, offsetting? And, and you know, forget what I think about offsetting for a moment. It's um, it's a potential new revenue stream for us and all that kind of stuff. And I think in the end, I concluded we shouldn't. We shouldn't do it. And it's partly the ethics and it's partly, um, actually, even if we did it, we, we, we likely aren't the right company to do it. The right company to do it is someone that does you know, carbon footprint measurement really, really well, because if you do that, you can then say, well, here's your way to offset it and, and, and take action. And, and we're not that. We're not, we're not going to measure uh, yeah. companies' um, um, carbon um, impacts. We're, we're not going to do that. We're the company that engages your employees. Uh, so really different. So focus is one thing. Um, I think um, um, focus it then shows itself in a number of other ways. So we, we grew relatively quickly. We, got, we hit 100 com- com- companies within the first Year having started the year out, you know, at, at like 10, 10 companies. So that's that's quite a lot of company growth. So you've got to figure out uh, how does the team change really, really quickly to match that. Um, and again, an example would be in the first 10, 20 customers, we really want to handhold those first 10, 20 customers, regardless of size. Could have been a, a thousand person business or a 10 person business, we'd have treated them exactly the same. And made sure they were incredibly happy with with you know a really high level of service. Um, at some point in that getting to 100 companies, unless we're going to massively staff up um, the organisation, actually we need to switch. We need to switch how we service, and a lot of things have to become automated. So what have we learned from the handholding that we can automate that then lets us look after 100 companies or 500 or 1,000 companies, and which companies therefore are large enough with revenue. Revenue that's large enough to say, hey, there's there's account management that goes with it. So uh, I guess that constant focus um, um, is always there. Uh, and then of course you got the team challenges that always come in too. So how do you adapt the team well enough to cope with all of the transitions we've done, uh, which there've been a lot? Uh, how do you keep the team uh, really engaged in what we do so they uh, they stay? And that that's always a challenge. You've got the great resignation going on, and it has affected us. Um, 
and even though we do lots of we did lots of things to uh, look after employees, it, it certainly has affected us. And um, and you've got to think about that piece too. And then you've got to think about the future recruiting uh, techs, where tech companies to techs a really interesting space for us on recruitment side. We're tech for good, which gives us an advantage. But um, tech's an incredibly competitive area. Uh, and then we think about our future growth too. So how do people? How do we have the right people who can uh, think about us in a in a very different way at scale? Uh, from where we are now is, is, uh, is also really interesting and a challenge. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Definitely. And uh, coming back to kind of the growth to date, like it does seem that you've grown rapidly and the customer's acquisition's actually been, um, I don't want to say easy, but it, it looks like it's been quite comfortable. Um, is that because it's on hand just such an instantly recognizable thing that companies will see and be like, it all makes sense, sign us up? Or like, have you, have you had certain channels that have worked really well for you when it's come to acquisition? Um, yeah. So, it's a mix of all of that. So um, in our first year, um, when we got to that 100 plus customers, really, it was a team of two um, biz dev heads, Kali and Lottie, who really um, signed up the vast majority of those customers. And it was a mix of almost 50-50 outbounds uh, and inbounds. And so the outbounds we did was you know cold email, uh, cold email. We didn't do lists. Um, we didn't buy lists. Um, Essentially, it was uh, their job. They went and researched different industry sectors, researched who who to contact within those companies that they found, and then they did cold outreach to them, um, typically via email, uh, which we which we found the easiest way to track uh, versus LinkedIn, which uh, other folks on the team are now experimenting much more with. Um, and what we found is we got really good response rates. So typically, we're getting ten percent um, response rate on our outbounds. Uh, converting into meetings, which um, is is really really high, and, and I think that was something to do with what we're doing isn't isn't the typical. I mean, you can look at this as a tech for good volunteering and and sustainability organisation. We could look at this as a as a as a SaaS B two B company. And so, for, if you look at this as a SaaS B two B company, a ten percent uh, cold response into bookings is is really really <laughs> high. Um, and so, um, right right, if you if you look at this that way, and that's you know. When we go for investment, we're talking. We're talking, talking on both sides. We do this really good thing. Now think of this as a B two B SaaS organization. Here are our metrics. Um, so that response rate's great. And I do think you're right. It's a lot to do with what we're doing. Um, hey, people want to be doing that kind of stuff. And I think over the last year, you're seeing. I mentioned great, great, great resignation earlier. You've got lots of um, lots more attention on purpose. You've got um, you know. IPCC report on climate change, um, organizations knowing they need to do more about it, um, the rise of B Corp. There's so many, I guess, mega trends going on right now, right? future work stuff, remote working. There are so many mega trends going on right now. Um, what we've built just, I think, um, obviously I'm biased, I think it just fits. It fits because we've got this on demand thing that's based on your location, so remote and hybrid, you know, tick. It engages your employees, a great resignation you know, tick. Yeah. We've introduced you sustainability stuff and, and organizations know they need to be making huge moves on being much more sustainability, sustainable. And then, you know, you've got the whole ESG movement coming in as well, where boards are going to be remunerated based on, on ESG and, and what they're doing in the world. And bonuses are going to be dependent on that stuff. Um, they already are at a number of companies. And I think over time, I think we're right at the start of lots more companies having that as part of their bonus structures. So what we've built, yeah, I think I think you're right. It, it just it just resonates at this point in time, and some of that's hard work, and some of that's a bit of luck in what we've happened to build pre-COVID. Just fits for where the world is right now. Definitely, and I know from reading numerous reports, like the the younger generations that are coming into into work now are looking for companies with purpose that have clear CSR that are shown to be doing stuff. Like what? What is the impact that they're having? So by not having it, you're almost cutting your nose off in terms of actually being able to bring people into into your workplace. Um, and yeah, I was I was thinking about this doing this interview, and um, 
thinking about kind of the products and just how easy it is. And I was trying to think of like almost challenges of how it doesn't work. And, and I was really struggling. I guess the only thing I could come up with was um, in terms of some of the missions, you're obviously working with some quite vulnerable people. Um, what are some of the safeguards that you put into place to make sure that someone isn't taking advantage of if, if you're picking up something for an elderly person, medicine or food, that that's not just taken? Yeah, so we look at safeguarding um, on two sides, both the volunteer, keeping the volunteer safe, but also keeping a vulnerable person safe. Um, and, I, and again, I guess I guess part of the luck we've had is, is how we started and being um, being founded partly with um, a bunch of charities was, was an immense help because they took, as you'd expect, they took safeguarding incredibly seriously in the first uh, first stages of On Hand. And actually, it's, it's one of the reasons they set up On Hand um, not as a charity. We're, we're not a charity. Uh, we're a check for good organization that's that's for profit. And one of the reasons they set us up in that format was they know that charities get massively restricted on what they allow people to do. And safeguarding becomes, um, you know, safeguarding is completely right, but it, get, it comes to a point where um, I remember one charity and not, not one of my founding charities, but another charity describing how safeguarding for them has become uh, a tick box exercise. So when something goes wrong, they can explain that publicly, but we did all of these things. Um, and so that's, I'm diverting from your question, but it's mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the reasons we were set up um, by the charities separate to them. Um, but to your safeguarding question, so we have a whole bunch of things we do on the volunteering side. So as a volunteer, if you're going to help someone vulnerable, actually anything we do that's face-to-face um, will require a DBS check. So you, you, you can sign up as normal on the app. There's plenty to do for any employee on the app um, without having to do a DBS check. But the moment you want to do something that's face-to-face, uh, we'll take you through a DBS process. You do it on the app. It's reasonably quick. Um, GBS is a pain in the bum. Uh, can't get away from that. But we, we, we like to think we've made it as, I guess, as, as easy as you can. Um, uh, and the turnarounds, like, hopefully within days, you get the approval to, to go ahead and do the local missions. And then on the, I guess, the vulnerable person side and keeping, keeping volunteers safe, we do a couple of things there too. So a lot of our uh, referrals come from another organization, someone like HUK or an NHS team or a Red Cross team who've already been working with the person they're referring, uh, which is great. So they've, they've already done a bunch of safeguarding checks, which is, which is good. But we'll, we still, and today, and it may change in the future, we may, we may ask the organization referring to us to do a lot more. But today, we call back every single person that's put onto the app that needs help. And we run through a whole bunch of safeguarding questions. Uh, and it probably stems from when we were smaller and didn't have the tech set up the way it was. And we used to go and meet everyone face-to-face uh, and essentially, we, we were lone workers, so we'd, we'd go around to people's houses, um, vet them to make sure they were fine for a, you know untrained volunteer to turn up. And so at that point, we had to think a lot about how, how do you keep the team safe? And so we have a whole bunch of safeguarding questions before we put them on the app. Things like, uh, where do you live? Describe the area. Uh, do you have any pets? Um, who else lives at the property? Who else will be there when people visit? And a whole bunch of questions like that, which... Um, um, we, we have a marking system and you know, a few red flags on that will, will mean it has to be reviewed before going onto the app or, or, or is automatically not going to go on the app. Um, trying to judge um, like safety, but also what's suitable for a, a, an untrained volunteer. And so you know, even, even though someone might be safe to visit, we may think the opportunity is actually it's, it's unsuitable for the volunteer that will turn up, uh, which leads to a bad experience on both sides. So we, we, we look at safeguarding, but we also look at suitability. And then you're raising your Series A at the moment. Once that's closed off, what will be kind of the focus for the next couple of years in terms of growth? Like, is it is it looking into new markets? Is it continuing to diversify the offerings to to the companies you work with? Yeah. So um, there's lots of really exciting things I think that come to us in the next next couple of years. Um, so we we know over uh, 2021 we acquired a lot of companies, and typically they were of a certain size. Um, um, the typical company being like 200 employees or, or r- roughly 200 employees, but some much larger and some, some much smaller. Um, all of a sudden, we're seeing companies that are a lot lot bigger coming to us, which, which, is, which is great. Um, it does mean we have to think about the service in a different way. So how does a 10,000-person company uh, get serviced versus you know, a 10-person company? company? Um, and the expectation level, of course, is, is really different from that company too. Um, so that, that's that's interesting for us and something we'll solve um, as, as we grow. Um, we also think um, a number of our current uh, companies and the ones that are starting to speak to us are international. And so uh, how do we make the app work for regardless of where you are in the world? Can, can this work as well in America or Singapore or France as it does in the UK? 
and that, that's a challenge straight away because we do a lot of local volunteering uh, but then we'll, and, and that's that's difficult because you know you, you need to have the charity relationships to set those up um, we're lucky again to have that founding relationship with the Red Cross the Red Cross is of course international and we hope we could we could leverage some of our relationships to, 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 to build on those kind of things um, and then I think we'll, we'll build based on um, what a local company is supporting. So can we add that? What is a local company's employee supporting? Can we add that? And so can we build out our local missions um, really nicely, but actually probably not at the same pace that we're able to do it in the UK. But alongside of that, of course, you've got the wellbeing missions, you've got the eco missions, you've got uh, crisis type missions, you've got all the talks and training and a whole bunch of other things you can do on the app that just apply regardless of where you are uh, what's been really interesting talking to some of our partners about that is we, we just assumed we need to localize with language and that's all the stuff wherever we went uh, and we've got a pilot group that's starting to look at this with us and one of the first pieces of the feedback is actually we're an international company and everyone speaks english so actually less worried about language versus what features we'll have in, in v1 so that's that's been um really exciting for us uh what we also know on the product side is um, i think i think at this point we know we know what we are, right? So there's been a lot of experimenting and adding things, um, but maybe you know, back to that conversation about should we do offsetting and carbon footprint measurement and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think we know what we are. The answer on that is no, we shouldn't. We're, we, we're gonna do the stuff that engages employees. So what is that, what is that pile? And by the way, we should play in the environmental and social space, you know, really squarely hitting being a tool for ESG employee engagement. Uh, so I think we know what we are which doesn't mean we won't add more features. We, we, we very likely will, but then everything else has got to get better. And so when, when you, were, you were talking about like, um, what can you point out that's not quite working the way it should on the app or where the pain points would be, for me, and of course, you, you're always your harshest critic, um, uh, things like filtering. So we're adding so many things to the app, but how do you find the thing you want? Hey, we, we can get loads better at that kind of thing. So I could see we, we definitely need a larger... Uh, tech team but we also need uh, like products product teams we need designers um so how do we make you know within one click you can find that loneliness call or preventing call that you want to do versus having to go to filters and click click around five times before you can get to it so things like that making making usability so much so much better um and you know we get we get good feedback which is which is wonderful but we can i think we can be so much better too nice and if you achieved everything you could possibly want to with on hand um what does that look like like where where would you be? Where would the world be? How would you want employees to be engaging? Uh, I think I've often been asked uh, questions around well, what's the goal, like three years away, five years away, um, and it's all always been really hard to think about. Uh, partly because um, you know you, you start out and you really you've got to get to that. What's what's the metric I can get to before I can hit the next round of funding? And we, we are that kind of company that went for funding early because uh, it was the only way for us to um, generate enough traction before we could get to a state sustainability and profitability level. So for me, it was really, really hard to think beyond three months and six months than a year. And, you, and you're right, at this point, we've been around, we're into our fourth year. So we, you know, we, we, we're, we're, it looks like we could, we could we could stick around for quite a while, which is, which is great. And so for the first time, I think we're starting to think, well, what, what do we want to achieve two years out, three years out, five years out? Uh, and, you know, five years out for us would, would take us to a decade in. Um, and, it, and it becomes really exciting it's like well why can't we be the tool that every company has to engage their employees in doing good and that's like okay that's one but is, is that it no it's not it's, it's it's why can't we be the tool for anyone in the world to do social or eco good um, and full stop so the place for anyone in the world to take action and if we're successful on doing that well what does that mean <laughs> what does that mean it, it, it's um how you transform community it's how you transform what's happening to the planet yeah, you know, and, and it, it feels almost ridiculous for me to say it out loud, but that's that kind of, that's the kind of conversation we we're having a year ago. Saying, "Well, how how do we do that? Oh, can, could we do that?" And all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, we we could do that if we if we're lucky enough to stick around and get the funding we need um, and keep our focus and the tech development um, going the way it has done. Yeah, that's that becomes possible in the time kind of timeframes uh, you're talking about. Moving on to just talk to you just personally about your founder journey. Um, you're a solo founder. How how does that work in terms of like, how do you deal with the tough times? Um, is it the team around you? Do you have other people outside of the business you can go to? Like, how do you deal with the real like 
tough moments as a solo founder? It's the first time I'm founding something by myself, um, actually founding anything or, you know, with others or not. It's the first time I've done it. Um, I've always thought I've worked really, really hard. Uh, but solo founding, it's like, wow, okay, there's, there's an immense amount of work that goes into it and it doesn't really stop. Um, and how do you share that and who do you share that with is really difficult because um, you've got a team, you've got a team who, you know, got absolutely wonderful team, but I've also got an ethos around how that team engages and how it works, which is, you know, I don't want them working on the weekend. I don't want them working in the evenings. I mean, they could choose to. That's great if they do. But um, I'm not, I'm not going to ping them in the evenings or on the weekends because I don't expect that level of engagement. They don't own the company. like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very, very simple and obvious way to behave, I think. Um, and so um, that's not the team. Um, it's, I, I don't think it's quite, quite the same to, to have a team um, at, like BV at the place to they, – they absolutely do support on lots of the work we do. But on the bit where it's really tough, I, I'm not sure it's that. Um, and and I guess I'll be honest, I probably haven't found the right outlet for where that support comes from. Um, certainly, there's been many, many times where I thought, if I could go back, would it have been cool to have had a, a, a co-founder? Um, and, I, and I think that's right. I think I think if I go back or give advice to other folks thinking about that entrepreneurial journey and startup, um, starting something up, uh, I, think, I think I would advise finding one, at least one, um, and maybe more, co-founders who can go on this journey with you and so be as deeply involved in it as deeply um um i guess engaged in in what the outcome looks like uh, and therefore want to work all those crazy hours that you do as well and therefore can also take some of the pain that comes from hey there's various points we've had where we're running out of money and we're we're months away from you know running out of cash and 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 that kind of thing hopefully we're past but um um you can't really share that kind of that kind of pressure yeah, with yeah. most of your team uh, when you when you're running uh, when you're at that point in a, in a startup. But your co-founders, you probably could. Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes with being a solo founder, which is tough. And 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 maybe I'll go back again a step, which is I didn't do this until I was in my I'm in my forties. Um, I I think and I, I found it incredibly tough as a solo founder, um, and I found the pressures and the stress incredibly high. You know, higher than at any point in my in my life um and you know again in spirit of transparency it's it, it manifests its way it, itself in in ways you don't expect you know i've, I've broken out in hives at certain points there's this this and it certainly affects my family life and all that kind of stuff so definitely don't want to um like um sugarcoat anything for anyone that's listening and definitely want to be transparent for anyone else that's listening who's a founder and has had that stress level or um has had some of the outcomes that come from stress and that, that stuff's all real even in you know, from the outside world on hand, and not in the inside world as well, on hand is a really successful startup, right? And um, uh, we, we, we feel like we're going places, we feel like we're doing really good. But even in that environment, stress levels for the founder are really high and stress levels for the team are also high, but it's not, um, it's, a, it's a different different type of stress, I hope. Um, some some stress being, being good. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just don't think anything beats having someone with the same level of buy-in to the vision, the same level of passion, same level of effort. Uh, there's just nothing that's going to beat that than having a co-founder. So always find it interesting when, when you are doing it by yourself and, and just how you can cope with that. Um, obviously, my research and just knowing the business, uh, a lot of awards and recognition, both for yourself as an individual and as a business. What's, what's been like your, your proudest moment so far? We've won a lot of awards and uh, uh, that's, that's really cool. So um, there's been probably three I'm allowed to mention three. So uh, the first one, when we won something for the... Um, Great British Entrepreneur Awards. That was really cool because that was felt like a team team movement where we'd won like a, the Tech for Good, uh, Entrepreneur for Good Awards, and that was really a, a huge team moment. Um, I think we watched it. it. Was it was in lockdown, so we all watched it uh, together on you know separate together but separately on on Zoom or whatever it was. Uh, so that felt that felt fab, and it felt like the first like big award we won with you know national recognition, uh, which was which was cool and, and very early. Uh, very early for us as well. Um, I think the second one we won last year, we won a Wellbeing Award. And um, it was the first time we'd won um, something in Wellbeing. We've won, I think, many, many awards in uh, volunteering, which is which is really cool. The, the, to get that recognition in Wellbeing was, was, was super because um, I think 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, you think about Wellbeing and 
what the services are to help wellbeing and you'd, you'd very much think around coaching and and other mental health direct mm-hmm. uh, interaction um um uh, which is all correct it's all, all correct and, and then i think over the last 18 months or so more and more pillars of well-being have been understood like financial well-being um and social well-being has certainly arrived as one of those those big pillars and for us to um win that award and again it was an award uh, where you know the competition were fantastic a lot of other really large organizations are really well known for well-being uh, for us to get that one was was, was, was really special um uh, i guess i guess the third one so it's hard not to mention it i guess um uh, Arlie, i guess personally um got an mbe um recently and that was for like services to older adults in uh, the covid lockdown uh, and and the work we did then uh, and that was that was also super because um that was that was an incredibly tough moment for us where we had the tech but it was new the volume of stuff coming in was like unlike anything we'd ever seen uh, the team had to be immense on delivering every day um there's moments where we were just releasing bits of the tech but covid had kicked off we'd done deals with councils and uh, the phones were going crazy with with um folks ringing us needing their shopping done and you know they had nothing in their cupboards uh, so the work levels that we did at that point were, were, were just immense because because the tech wasn't quite right for a volunteer to contact someone directly. Um, it was very quickly into COVID, but at the start it wasn't. Um, and so the recognition for that work was was also yeah yeah. I'm not surprised. I mean, just just being able to help so many people in such like a vulnerable segment of society. It, I mean, just doing that alone must feel great. But then to be recognised with an MBE is something else. So, <laughs> congratulations. Um, to talk a little bit about kind of what it means to run and, and grow an impact business, um, didn't mention it, but another recognition you've had is, is Tech Crown, so where you recognised as number one tech for good company last year. Um, so my question is, like, what does it mean to you building a tech for good business, and and how have you gone about doing that? Is that been like a deliberate, th- like deliberate things like building blocks you put in place, or has it been more just finding your way as you got along? Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. And so I guess when I quit my last big roles, which we spoke, spoke about right at the um, start of the call, I wasn't planning on. I, I didn't want to do another one. I didn't want to do another one of those. I guess you know, fast growing, high growth. This is really exciting, but you know, just another product thing. I I, I didn't really fancy doing that. So there's there's lots of great roles out there in high growth tech companies, but that, doing another one just wasn't that exciting for me, but what's going on in the world right now across social issues or uh, environmental issues, if I could use that somehow, if I could use my my experience somehow to deliver some impact somewhere, yeah, that's, um, you know, so I, I went from consulting and not working that hard to working seven days a week because that stuff was motivating enough for me to be doing it. Uh, and by the way, you know, another founder story is, you know, love it and hate it in equal measurement, right? So it, it, I find it so engaging, I can't help but work on it. At the same time, I know that kills the rest of my life. So it's a kind of love and hate relationship. <laughs> um, but that that delivering impact piece is what you know gets me excited every, every day. Um, and then um, what was what was cool is we're not the first. We're not the first by any means. That there are organisations out there that we are we owe a lot to because they're, they're trailblazed for us. So people like uh, Olio have massively trailblazed for any other tech for good organisation to say, hey, go and look at them. That's what we could look like. Um, motivation for you, motivation for your team, motivation for investors. Um, someone like Beam doing just in, incredible uh, work and getting so much recognition for it. So it's it's you know tech for good has um, has some wonderful trailblazers and, and, and certainly has arrived. Um, and that that feels like the place where it certainly motivates me. But it's it's almost um, without question, it's the thing, the number one thing why people join on hand and, and stay. Is to have that that level of impact, uh, so that's that's been great for recruitment, and then it becomes really, really interesting as we grow. We're we're 15, 16 people now. We want to be thirty by the end of the year. How do you keep that ethos running really strong as you grow that fast? And we want to be you know 50, 60 people the year after. Um, that that becomes really key as a, as a and you know I've talked about focus before. It's, it becomes a really key focus for us to have that principles. Um, I'm here for a reason. Um, um, feeling that flows through the whole team fairly intuitively. Got it. And, you know, you just said likely to double, close to double this year, probably do the same again by end of next year. Um, what are your principles when it comes specifically to, to hiring? Like, what do you pass on to the team or, or what are the, the things you have agreed as a team when it comes to hiring people into the business? 
uh, and it probably relates back to my last answer, which is um, um, the number one motivation for joining on hand has got to be what we do and the impact we can deliver. Uh, and we haven't always got that right on hiring. And, and um, I, I think we have to get much better at it, or I have to get much better at it, because without it, you miss something on the input um, uh, an employee will have. And so, um, and, and we're so much stronger when everyone is on the same page about what we're trying to do and the impact we can have, and therefore um, how much they want to put in of themselves. Uh, to get that that objective, it's it's not just a job, right? It's um, it, and I think I used to say that at some of my other um, earlier companies. It's not just a job. We're we're doing something incredible here and all that kind of stuff. But it's different. It's different. We're we're impacting people's lives. We're impacting, um, hopefully, the planet. At some point, we'll we'll have enough traction on on that that that, that makes a difference. But right now, we're impacting communities in a in a in a non substantial you know in a in not in insubstantial way we're we're you know we're, we're we're helping communities that wouldn't actually get that help otherwise and if we can't if we hire people that want to be having that kind of impacts you know, it's it's exponential it's not just we do the job and, and that's great it's they care so much they'll have 10x ideas on how else we can do it or how much easier we can make that for volunteers or the folks we help which then drives even more people to want to use the service so number one on hiring is is being into uh, what we do then there's a whole bunch of other traits that come with you know working at startup is never going to be the perfect environment so there's got to be certain uh, mindset things for employees coming in understanding where we are the growth that we're going on the imperfectness of being in a startup but the excitement that goes with that um so yeah those that, those probably are the big two it's what, what do we do are you into that and are you are you really up for being in the startup world yeah the, the purpose alignment for me is the, the key one like when we work with businesses and we're speaking to people you can you can immediately tell if someone really finds that the purpose of the mission or, or what they're doing like super exciting and you just know if someone's engaged on that level that's a different level of hire to someone who's maybe a great skill set match but they're indifferent um i guess one thing that always i, I find quite admiring about founders is is that especially if they're first-time founders or maybe they're quite, quite quickly done the entrepreneur route and, and started a startup, is that they will have limited hiring experience. And yet suddenly they're, they're expected to hire across sales, marketing, finance, tech, products with potentially zero knowledge in those areas. What, what's been your experiences or what would your advice be to founders starting out that are kind of like seed stage, series A, starting to hire for skill sets they don't know about? Where do you go for advice? What's been great advice you've been given? I started thinking about, well, what are the questions I want to ask any candidate, regardless of what their position is? What, what, are, the, what are the base set of questions I'm going to ask anyone? Um, and then you customize based on what the job is. Um, and then how many stages do you want to have uh, and why? Why do you need all of those stages? So, you know, um, you know, I'm seeing stages that include like five stages. Well, why do you need five stages? <laughs> can, can, can it be two stages? If it can't be two stages, why not? And is that dependent on the level of job or not? And then if you're going to have two stages or three stages, what is it you're trying to figure out in the first interview versus the second interview versus if you've got a final stage? Uh, what are the differences for those three? Um, none, none of that's rocket science, but if you can standardize your approach, um, I think I think that's helpful. Um, there's lots of online stuff on great questions to ask in any uh, industry sector. They're, they're, they're good. Um, they're not always right, so you can experiment with them and get it wrong sometimes, which is, which is also fine and, and a learning. Um, and there's something else on like hiring tips. Um, I, I think um, know your limits too. So if I was hiring... Um, if I was hiring for technology, I'm not a technologist. I work, worked in tech companies, but I, I, I'm not an engineer. So um, I'm looking for, when I interview a technologist, I'm looking for, you know, culture fit, um, work ethic, the kind of stuff you'd expect from someone who understands what working the startup's like versus working in a big organization. But I'm probably not testing them on um, uh, their skill set. That would be, I'd have to have someone else involved for the interview process to understand that, that part, which, you know, uh, luckily, we have these days. I think in the early days, it was it was going on. Do I think they sound confident enough about what they're doing? Do I really like this person? And by the way, let me let me definitely take a reference. Yeah, makes sense. And we kind of talked a bit about it earlier. Like it's a super competitive market, specifically within tech and product. But I think now across pretty much any areas of the business, a lot of funding going to startups. Everyone's trying to hire at the moment. Um, where do you think on hand compete really well? I know we've already talked 
a lot about the mission and, and how much that attracts people but outside of that like what are the things that you offer that you think puts you in like a good place yeah you're, you're right so you know the basics are we're not like every company we're, we're technically good organizations delivering impact so you've you've got that as a i guess a, as a given but um i think the tech for good world is 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 really um, again, at, at the start of that wave, and there are lots of newer newer companies coming into tech for good. So, so it's it's it, increasingly it won't be a unique story, right? So, in um, in two years' time, three years, five time, years' time, there'll be many more businesses that are responsible for doing actions that are impactful. We've got tech for good, which makes us unique at this point. Uh, we take well-being and other aspects of working here really seriously on culture, uh, and then hey, it's just a nice place to work. And um, if we can get those bits right. Um, and assuming, of course, we're we're in in talking about um, packages that are at market or um, you know um, reasonable, uh, then hopefully we've got the advantage that gets us the right highs. And in terms of, um, I guess, growth to date, but also the the two x growth this year and next year that's planned. Um, I think another thing that founders struggle with is to know like who should we use for these hires? Should we try and do this internally? How can we get more referrals to save costs? Oh, recruiters cost a lot of money. There's big fees involved. What's been your experience so far? Like the, the the growth so far, has that been done mainly from direct efforts, or has it been leveraging partners? And and like looking forwards as you continue to grow, like what's the strategy going to be to to hiring? Yeah, so um, we've been lucky. We're, I guess we've had a reasonable profile. Uh, we've built a reasonable profile on socials um, and other channels. Um, and uh, you know, I, I don't I don't know if we've we we know we're, we 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 hope to be you know where an Olio or a Beam is on. Uh, recognition in tech for good um, in the next few years uh, we're nowhere near them but 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 it feels like it feels like we, we are, we're getting to be reasonably well known in in that space which which is great and um that for sure helps us helps us hire uh, so when we post on socials we we typically get a, a decent response uh, and for most positions uh, when we post on some job boards we, we also get a really really good response um there are always going to be pockets of the business that are harder and um, for those, uh, we've used Confido for like tech tech hires before, and we've used other organisations uh, for, for certain specific roles that we think will just be too hard to uh, to reach ourselves, or are so specific, you know, you know, trying to use uh, socials or, or whatever, it just isn't gonna. It would be luck versus you know, socials is gonna it's gonna it's gonna work. So I can definitely see space for us using both direct channels, um, also using um, specialists where we need to. And over time, if, if, if we're lucky to grow at that kind of pace at some point, um, would we look at an internal team at some point? Um, yeah, if we, if we continue at this pace and we go international and we keep growing a team, at some point it makes it probably makes sense to have an internal hiring team at some point. Yeah, I think the the advice I give to businesses that are cutting around that Series A, Series B route and they're starting to hire consistently month on month is bring it internal from a talent brand perspective, consistency, onboarding experience it just makes it so much easier to manage. So that all makes sense. And um, I don't, are, you, are you hiring at the moment or do you expect to be hiring soon? And if so, if someone's listening into that, to this episode and thinking I'd love to work on hand, like what's the best way for them to reach out or, or find you? Yeah, so uh, hiring wise, um, we're just about to, I hope, uh, touch on wood, we're <laughs> about to complete a new fundraise. And so we have a lot of hiring that we expect to do in the uh, second half of this year. Uh, we're... we're um, recorded this in in april late april um, um so the highs we expect to do will be across all teams so that is uh, from business development to technology to customer success and, and and customer experience to partnerships so across all of what we do we expect to hire um, um probably hiring uh, fastest in business development and technology um and then we also have some unusual roles so at some point in the second half, we we really expect to hire someone who leads us on um, impact delivery, uh, and that could be um, yeah a head of impact, um, a sustainability lead. We're not quite sure what the right uh, right position is, but it's a, it's going to be a really interesting role for us. Where you look at what we do today, and we've gone from social good to eco goods. We also plant you know company forests. Um, we need someone who can understand how to deliver the most amount of impact looking at all of those things, understanding really well, and then directing us on what we what we do, how we do it, and who with um, to maximize what you know what should be giant impacts. Um, how do we maximize that? And um, yeah, can't wait to make that high. So that, that's gonna be a really interesting one for us later this year. 
Um, yeah, so we you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find uh, under on hand. Um, we will put um, jobs on to our site as well. Um, we'll probably try some job sports, but yes, via our site um, or directly into the team or di- directly linking to me, definitely the best ways. Brilliant. Well, Sanjay, thank you for chatting with me today. It's been a real privilege. And as you know, I'm a massive on-hand fan, so I can't wait Pleasure. to follow the rest of your journey. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Craig. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time. Thank you.